Jacob, it's good to be with you today. I'm Kurt Parker. It's a blessing to be together and worship together with you. It's wonderful in first service as well with just the joy of uh, remembering those great truths of the scripture. I hope that you were in the word this week. As I've said to you many, many times, if you weren't in the word this week every day, what are you this morning? You are starving this morning. And that is not how the Lord wants you to be any more than he would want you to meet, uh, miss consecutive days of actual physical food. He doesn't want you to miss days of spiritual food. You need to be in it each day so you can hold up that holy standard uh, before you, that you can be sanctified through the word, that uh, you can understand the blessings that come along with those who are righteous, as, as Jason read this morning. Just It's just so rich and so imperative for you to grow and have a solid foundation as a believer so you are not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. You're supposed to grow up, and I'm supposed to grow up into the image and maturity of Christ. So that's my encouragement to you. And we're going to do that this morning, and I'd like you to turn, if you would, in your copy of God's Word to 1 Timothy chapter 5. It's a joy to be back in this new study, and the first two verses kind of uh, on their own, a topic on their own, how to reprove and what to do in reproof, because obviously... Timothy has been given a lot of instruction from the Apostle Paul to apply to this Ephesus church, and so much going on here, and so there's, uh, we're going to move into this next section, really picking up in verse 3, where Timothy is going to have to apply some of what he's already been taught by the Apostle Paul, and how to approach those who are in error. And so I'd like you to read with me, if you would, picking up in verse 3, we're going to read all the way through verse 16. Verse 3 says this, Honor widows who are widows indeed, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Verse 5, Now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. Verse 6, But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Verse 7, prescribe these things as well. But if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Verse 9, a widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man. Verse 10, having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed, assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. Verse 11, but refuse to put younger widows on the list, for when they feel sensual desire and disregard of Christ, they thus incurring condemnation because they've set aside their previous pledge. Verse 13, at the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house. Not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies take, talking about things not proper to mention. Verse 14, therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For, verse 15, some have already turned aside to follow Satan. Verse 16, if any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them, and the church must not be burdened so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. Let's stop right there. As we finished reading that, it would be easy to think, why is this included in the letter? But even more pertinent, perhaps, what possible takeaway can be made for my life today? I think that's a fair uh, analysis, probably, of maybe what you're feeling as you read that. We know what it says. Uh, we know, obviously, what it means by what it says. It's pretty straightforward. It's not hidden, but how does that apply to me, perhaps, is the question. But it seems insignificant, I think, and maybe not worth our time, but the opposite is actually true. And there are so many things here that, it's gonna, that are going to help us, it's going to take us a while to get through it. And so to start with, as an introduction, kind of set the stage for our own thoughts as we think about this passage, I think the biblical case can easily be made with very little effort that in God's economy, women are to be carefully cared for with no exceptions. And God's commands concerning his care and his esteem and the required care he expects from men is not hidden. And his commands and his high esteem really derailed the general view of the culture in ancient times, and it still does that today. Even though today, according to our White House, some would say that the modern culture empowers women 
but the approval of incomprehensible gender fluid identity as whatever gender you want to be really shows the true nature of modern culture's affirmation. And feminism and empowering women to take the life of their own children in their womb is certainly what I would not categorize as care and esteem that this culture puts forward. God's approval and high esteem are easily seen in both the Old and New Testament. Just kind of a cross section so you get the idea of what the Lord thinks about all of this. Proverbs chapter 31 verse 10. An excellent wife who can find for her worth is far above jewels. This is where we get to see the woman that God thinks is great. If you've never read this passage starting here in verse 10 all the way down through verse 31, it would be good to read that. God thinks very highly of godly women, very highly, and esteems them greatly. Proverbs 31.30 says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. She's going to be praised. Give her the product of her hands. Why? Because it's marvelous. And let her works praise her in the gates. What she's done is, be ob- is obvious. She's praised. See the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4. The hidden person of the heart with imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is, this is so great, precious in the sight of God. What's precious in the sight of God? A woman who has a heart that has the quality of a gentle, quiet spirit, precious in the sight of the Lord. In God's design, women are objects of special care. It's always been... Uh, have, they've always had God's attention. They have his provision. And uh, women are to be the recipient of provision and preservation and protection. And normally that would come from their fathers and later their husbands or their brothers. God tells us in Scripture that woman is a weaker vessel. And so he commands husbands, you husbands, in the same way. He says, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she's a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. The husband then is required to understand her, not what you think she's about, not trying to form her and force her into your own image, but to understand how she is and to love her that way, to study her and make sure that you're ministering to her in that way and show her honor and as a fellow heir of the grace of life. And not doing that means you can pray all you want, but they don't get any higher than the ceiling. The prayers are hindered. Because God's commands are very clear. Men are to be the protector. They're to be the, someone who honors and provides. And the husband's job here is extremely important. And the Lord doesn't leave it up to the husband to decide how to love. This is how I'm going to love my wife. She just has to get used to it. It's not subjective. He has care that he's very, very clear about. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, which is a passage that we go through in our premarital counseling time, really gives the, the very high standard of love. Husbands, Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. There it is. That's the level of love. That's the level of care. That's the level of service. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water of the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. Wives are to be loved by their husbands in the self-sacrificing way that Christ loved the church. That's what the love looks like. Love gives. It gives at the ultimate level. She's to be washed by the words of her husband. He switched back to Christ in the church, but it's the illustration, isn't it? You're supposed to wash your wife with your words. That's part of dwelling with her in an understanding way. You have to know how to communicate with her in such a way that you wash her. And she's to be built up so she can do the ministry that God has for her. You're going to put her in a position where she can have ministry both in your family and later outside as she becomes an older woman and can teach the younger women to love their husbands and love their children and take care of the home. You set her up for that, man. She's to be loved uh, like her husband loves his own body. And that really flies in the face of ancient culture and modern culture. But this is what God expects. She was made to receive it. And I say to you, as I said the first service, if you're single, particularly if you're a single lady, this is what you were made for. If the guy that you're dating now, as you evaluate him and who his friends are and how he talks and how he acts and what he says to you, if it doesn't start to match up like this, dump him. You were made for this. This is what honors the Lord. 
And so if he's not conforming to that, if he's not that kind of person, don't think you're going to change him. This is as good as it's going to get. If you're in the courtship and it's not this, it's not going to get any better. So let him go. Because you were made for this, and this is what the marriage is supposed to look like, and this is the picture that God has, and that's the kind of love that God gives to women, and that's the type of esteem that he has. And you're supposed to model that. And now pertinent to our passage, as we think about what we just talked about and knowing now what we know, you may be sure then that widows, that's women without a husband, women who have lost their husband and therefore all of the things we just looked at and all the care and provision and sacrifice and understanding and all that, they're a very special concern to the heart of God. He takes great interest in protective care relative to a woman who has lost her husband. In the Old Testament, widows are accorded an extraordinary amount of care and honor, and that came right out of the fifth commandment, God's top ten, number five, God could have had a top 100, but he boiled it right down to 10 of them, and one of them made it. And that's honor your father and mother in Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor was understood to include providing everything, including financial support, as Jesus made so clear when he scolded the Pharisees and teachers of the law in Mark chapter 7, verse 10. He says this, For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of his father or mother is to be put to death. That's what Moses said. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corbin, that's the Greek word for given to God, set aside to be given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. So they set aside God's priorities to honor and take care of those who are their father and mother, particularly here, wife, uh, who is now has no husband, and his commandments uh, God's commandments to honor them in order to hold to the traditions of men. And Jesus just said, obviously, God's not pleased with that. Don't think that you're making him happy because you say, I'm taking the money I would have used to help you, and I'm going to give it to God, and I can't take it away from God now and give it back to you. Shortly after giving the Ten Commandments, God tells Moses in Exodus 22, verse 21, you shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. If you afflict them at all, or if he cries out to me, I will surely hear his cry, and my anger will be kindled, and I'll kill you with a sword, and your wives will become widows, and your children become fatherless. That's pretty stark, isn't it? It tells you a little bit about what God thinks about those who were without protection and those who were powerless. And Jewish culture understood these things, but they really set them aside, as we just saw in Mark, at their own whim. And modern culture thinks they understand affirming women, as we said, but the marks of affirmation and the marks of empowerment from this culture are so horrifying and so absurd, and they're anything but pro-women. It's opposite of the heart of God, which has always been the same. And even in the case of Hagar, if you think about Genesis 21, even the result of Abraham's lack of faith and Abraham's sin and then Hagar and Ishmael being cast out, we see God's heart for the one with no husband who hears her cry, the one with no father, even though it resulted in descendants that would create the very situations we have now in Israel. God's heart's always been the same for those without a protector. And because they're so closely intertwined, as you've seen already, there's another group of people whom God is particularly inclined to care for and protect. And who is that? That's the fatherless. And as you think about the wonder of Psalm 68, which starts, let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. That's a pretty terrifying thing if you think about it. Let God begin to do the things he can do and he's going to scatter his enemies. That's a sure future. And then you get to verse 5, a father to the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. So scripture reveals to us that God is particularly concerned to protect those who've lost their protection, their preservation. He provides preservation for them and provides for their provision. And children, as you well know, are to be under the care and leadership and protection of their parents. And when a child loses that, that child becomes the object of special compassion and special attention from God. And I think we can easily make that case over and over and over and over and over. And in the old economy, they knew this very well. Just a couple of ones with no slides. Just listen as the, as the Lord gives to Moses the law in Deuteronomy chapter eight, or 10, verse 18, we see 
God executes justice for the orphan, for the widow, and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. They have his attention. Later in Deuteronomy 14, 28, part of the 23 and a third percent the Jews were required to give. You remember as we've gone through giving, I explained to you how giving was all set up to begin with. The Jews didn't give 10%. Uh, they gave 23 and a third percent, actually. So there's no uh, prerequisite for required 10% giving, and we looked at all that. But guess where some of it went? Verse 28, at the end of every third year, you shall bring out all the tenth of your produce in that year, Every three years, take a tenth of everything that you have grown and you shall deposit it in your town. The Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance among you, and the alien and the orphan and the widow who are in your town. Who are important to the Lord? The alien, the orphan, the widow. They shall come and eat and be satisfied in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands which you do. He's provided everything you have and part of that he says to his his people underneath the theocracy is to bring these things in so that people have something to eat, particularly orphans and widows. And on top of the 23 and a third percent, so that's the required giving, Deuteronomy 24, 17 has additional giving. Guess how that works? You shall not pervert the justice due an alien or an orphan, nor take a widow's garment and pledge. Make sure you're not abusing them legally. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this thing. When you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten the sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. That's on top of already bringing a tent, everybody bringing a tent into your town to make sure they were taken care of. If you forget a sheaf in the field, don't go back for it. And when you beat your olive tree, you should not go over the boughs again so it didn't fall the first time. Don't go back and try to make it fall. That shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. And when you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you should not go over it again for it shall be for the alien and for the orphan and for the widow. You see, God's interested in taking care of those who have lost their provision and lost their care and lost their power and those who could take care of them. And he's concerned about women particularly and concerned about the fatherless. Those about with someone without someone to defend them. And he defends them. And that's a sobering and scary thought. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. If you abuse them, I'll come and make your wife and your kids widows and orphans. So he's concerned about it. And it didn't change in the New Testament, as we've seen in James chapter 1 and verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself unstained by the world. As James boiled down what true religion looked like, it had to include two things. That's not surprising, is it? As we see over and over again in the Old Testament how important it is and how God's heart is here for women in particular and for those who are orphans and those who are widows. Pure and undefiled religion in God's sight is to visit orphans and widows in their distress, making sure they're what? Provided for and taken care of and supported and keep oneself unstained by the world. One of my favorite passages in all the New Testament is this one. I'll share it with you because, and you'll see in just a minute why it's, it's my favorite. But in, in Matthew 18, verse 1, at that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, he, they probably assumed he was going to say, well, of course it's you, John. It's you, Peter. It's you, Andrew, right? I mean, look at your kind heart. I mean, that's what they expected. Here's what they said. Here's what Jesus said. He called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you're converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? Children. That shouldn't surprise you, right? It shouldn't surprise you that children are greatest in the kingdom. You know why it shouldn't surprise you? Because of the war in our culture against children. Children are the greatest. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, so the child is the illustration of the greatest, and everyone who comes into the kingdom has to humble themselves like a child. He's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives such a child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble... We better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. Your wife will become a widow and your kids will become orphans. 
Don't abuse any of these people. God will see it. Take care of them so he can bless you in what you do. So he goes right along with it, see? It'd be better if you were just killed. That's how important children are to the Lord. Verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who's in heaven. That should terrify you right there. Abusing a child, causing a child harm. Angels are ministering spirits, we understand, given to the, by the Lord to minister to those who are believing. Every child has an angel that is there, and he sees the face of the Lord. And if you're abusing that child, guess what conversation they're having? Not one you're going to want. If we know how God looks at orphans and we know how God looks at widows. God takes up the case for women without husbands. God takes up the case for children without fathers. And as we've seen, women and children in general. And Jesus, as we would expect, had the same view. Jesus' heart for widows here is so clear in Luke 7, verse 11. Jesus is walking around. He's doing his ministry, itinerant ministry. He comes to a city called Nain. His disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. So there's a lot of them moving into this city. And now as he approaches the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a... So what happened? He died, and now she has, she has no provision. She has no perfect protection. No one's taking care of her. The, the one who was doing that because she has no husband, is now dead. What do you think Jesus is going to do? A sizable crowd from the city was with her, and the Lord saw her. He felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. And he came up and he touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat back up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. He provided back again the protector and the provider, didn't he? Now, you and I can't do that. We can't say, oh, I'm going to put my hand on the coffin and I'm going to give this person back. So then what's obligated then for us to do? See, we can't give them back the protector, so we have to be part of that, don't we? And you can see this. This is, this is not hidden from us, is it? And, and, and I love this as well. We've looked at this when we looked at giving. In Luke 21, verse 1, he applauds and praises a widow. She becomes an example for all generations and forever of faithful free will giving. Listen to what he says. He looked up, so he's watching everybody come into the temple, and he's watching these very wealthy people giving these very large gifts, and, and all the disciples are saying, oh man, look at this huge gift. Look at the beautiful things there that people have given in the temple. And Jesus just puts all that aside, and he sees a poor widow putting in two small copper coins, and he said, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all out of their surplus put into the offering, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. And what did that show? That her provider and her supplier and her protector was whom? The Lord. That's what everybody's supposed to do. When you give, you know when you give, you're supposed to give sacrificially because you're supposed to rely on the Lord to replace what you've given. See, that's part of sacrificial giving. Here, it was everything. And did the Lord reprove her and say, you know, it was only two, you only had two copper coins to begin with. That probably wasn't that, that uh, wise financially. That was a bad financial move. He didn't say that at all. In fact, opposite. He praised her and said, this is the example of faithful sacrificial giving. And this is a widow who all of her hope and all of her protection and all of her provision is coming from the Lord. And he could see that in her faith. She had more faith than anybody else who'd given anything. The husbandless, the fatherless, are by God's design uniquely his concern. They receive from him sincere attention and compassion and merciful treatment. And so we can easily say, I think with all certainty, that those people who name the name of God, those people who identify with him, should see this as an imperative. To have the same heart for women and children that he does. That would make the gospel clear, would it not? Pure and undefiled religion is that. Because the more we're like this in our care, the more we resemble the Father. And the better we love our wives, the more we resemble the Son. See? And when we defend the helpless, we have a family resemblance to our Heavenly Father, don't we? Because He defends the helpless. So with that introduction now, and we lay that foundation, I think you can see 
the background of God's heart using the commands that are so clear to us. And of course, Jesus' example in his words, the early church really excelled in the care of widows. In fact, Acts chapter 6 records how seven godly men were appointed to carry out a daily distribution of food to Grecian widows in Acts 6 verses 1 through 6. And we looked at that passage, so I won't go back to it again because as we were looking at leadership in the church, we looked at that precursor to deacons that happened right there. But obviously there was some problem and some people were getting ignored and they weren't having what they needed and maybe some who didn't need it were getting it and it was kind of an argument going on and it was so important to the New Testament church because they understood so clearly Jesus' own heart and God's own heart that they assigned six godly men to make sure this all got worked out and the things that were supposed to happen did. And so we can see that the church got this right. And they understood James 1.27 undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father. As God looks at it, it's going to have to include some certain things. And the early church did it. But here's the thing. They lost discernment concerning how to go about this ministry. And that would not be hard to do. Perhaps letting it become the driver and a good thing became not so good a thing. And you remember as we looked at Ephesus in Revelation, what did we see? Ephesus had lost their first love. First love of the gospel, of, of clear teaching of the gospel, and the mission of the gospel became secondary or on down the line, and other things were driving the church that did, were good things but didn't need to drive the church. And, and so maybe they even put non-believers on the roll, and I think we got the sense of that as we read, we read that passage. So Paul instructs Timothy to perform, if you will, an intervention with some tough directives. And, he, and, and the commands that he's just given, as we looked at the first two verses of chapter 5, he's going to have to do some correction. He's going to have to rebuke some people. And so, remember, he told Timothy, hey, you know, it's going to need to be done, but you don't do it in a spirit of anger, a spirit of wrath or disrespect, but in a spirit of encouragement and admonishment. And then remember, when you do this correction, it needs to be done. It's to be done with a consideration for others as is proper in a family. And so here, in a very real sense, he's going to get to put that relational skill to work as he's going to deal with older women. And he has to deal with them as mothers. And he's going to deal with younger women. And he has to deal with them as sisters in all purity. So I think it's just obvious the flow. He gives some relational skills to Timothy and says, okay, wait in there, buddy. And it's not going to be fun. So, you're going to have to correct the church. He's going to have to correct those perhaps administering this ministry, the ones who are handing out uh, whatever has to be handed out. And he's going to have to correct some widows and, and he's going to have to correct some younger ones. And so, let's look at verse 3 and we'll get into it. Now that we have, I think, the sense of the passage and God's heart about it, then we can come back and see what he has to say uh, to the church. And the first one is verse 3. Look there, it says, Honor widows who are widows indeed. And just obviously, this is principle three in relating and leading. Uh, the first concern correcting erring, erring members and how to go about it. Uh, this principle and the ones, though, following concern dealing with widows, something, as we've seen, is very important to the heart of God. So principle number three, it's the responsibility of the church to support true widows. I think we can say that categorically. I don't think we, there's any way we can move away from that. It means it has to be on the priority list for the church if there are true widows we're going to have to provide their support. That's important. Now, let's look at the words because I think they help clarify exactly what has to be done because that's a very, that can be very muddy waters. Honor is that verb tamao, present active imperative. So it's a command. Honor to Timothy to bring it to the church, to direct it and carry it out, if you will, this command. You're going to have to honor widows. It's a derivative of a word that is a superlative, the word being most precious. So the, I think the sense of it is literally fixing the value accordingly to something that's precious. So it has to rise to the top. And here it has to do with financial support. We're going to see that more in just a minute. And then the word widows is the adjective keros. Now we understand that word and just in general to mean a woman who has lost her husband. And it does mean that. Paul qualifies it, he says, who are widows indeed. So when he says that, we have to know that all widows aren't equal, right? That isn't the sum of the Greek word, just someone who's lost their husband. And you have to supply for everybody who's lost their husband. It's actually an adjective that's being used as a noun in the Greek. 
It comes from the word cosmos, where we get our word chasm. And so it's a word that means lacking. It's a word that means there's a deficit, there's a gap, perhaps robbed or suffered loss. That's a derivative meaning of it. It can be used that way too. There's a big gap in her life. So the word then doesn't speak about how a woman got into the situation. I think you can see this. It just describes the situation. And we did the same thing and clarified in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that some things where we think they mean a certain thing don't mean that. They just deal with a certain facet of it. She suffered the loss of her husband. She has gaps. She's in deficit. It doesn't tell us how she lost the husband. Usually, of course, we would think she lost the husband through death. And although it would certainly include that, uh, there's nothing here to indicate that it's limited to that. In the context of its usage, in the first century, it can mean a woman who has lost her husband in any fashion. By death, certainly. She was divorced, perhaps deserted. Uh, she was cast off. There's any number of ways that she could find herself in a position where she no longer has a husband, not directly related to something that she did, but now that she has a big gap. And that's important. That's an important distinction to make as we think about the real words here and not what we imagine them to mean. First Timothy chapter 5 and verse 5, I, and we'll get to this shortly, but it helps us understand this definition. Now, she who is a widow indeed, and mark this, who has been left alone. Do you get it? So that clarifies it a little bit more, doesn't it? She's a widow indeed and has been left alone. That's a, that's a perfect passive participle. In other words, her position is that she is forsaken. She is continually desolate. There's not going to be a resolving of this situation. It doesn't say anything about the husband's death. Just simply describes the state of a woman who's been left alone because her husband is no longer present. And so she is in serious straits. There were no social services to provide anything like there is today. And unless they had someone to care for them, they were often reduced to poverty. And we're going to see a lot of other things. And just as a footnote, we're going to see a lot of other things that will clarify what it means to be a true widow. And there's going to be some character things in there. There's going to be some life choices they may or may not have made in the correct way and whether they served the saints and whether they were hospitable and all that kind of stuff, see? So there's a lot of things that are going to narrow this list down. But right here, we just have a general understanding. It is a woman who has been left alone without a protector or provider, someone to sustain them, just like we saw in the Old Testament. And these women have the particular interest and the heart of God. We are, uh, that's the care for those who are powerless, the defense for those who are defenseless. This is a special concern to the Lord. And so how the church cares for those who are in the special need in that care is a good reflection or a bad reflection of God's own heart. And again, we saw that word honor, just like we saw it earlier, tamao, present active imperative. It's the command. Timothy's to bring this command to the church, direct it to carry out, derivative of that superlative, literally fixing a value accordingly, and we looked at the passage earlier from the Gospel of Mark. Remember when the Pharisees were withholding money from, actual, from their actual parents, from those who were over them, and giving it to God and saying, I can't give it back to you because I've already given it to God. So it had to do with financial support too. Not just honoring, not just protecting, not just caring for, but also providing for the financial need. And we see the same thing, and I won't have a slide here, but Matthew's Gospel, verse, chapter 15, verse 1 Pharisees come, and, and we see the same story from Matthew, and, and you're just, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands when they eat bread. Pharisees come and say, hey, you guys are, your disciples are eating, they're walking in the grain fields, and they're not washing their hands, and all, make, nitpicking and whatever. And Jesus said, oh, really? How about this? How about, the, how about the fifth command in God's Ten Commandments, where you're not taking care of those who are, who are your parents? How about that? Right? Because it's not what's outside that defiles the body. What did he say? It's what's on the inside that defiles the body. Just because you eat without washing your hands doesn't mean you're defiling yourself in sin. Now, you might get sick, but it's not sinful. Here's what's sinful, Jesus said. You're not taking care of the people who are, who are your parents, not providing for their needs. Traditions of men here were if someone's parent had a need instead of meeting that need, hey, I'd like to give it to you, but you know, I give it to God and I can't take it back from God. I give it to you. I'm so spiritual. just protected the money so there wouldn't be a constant drain, right? If you're taking care of older parents who have need or a mom who no longer has your dad around, that's a constant need. It's going to be until they, the Lord takes them home. They weren't about that. So here where Paul commands Timothy to instruct the church to honor widows 
He has in mind not just respect, not just regard, but also um, in mind financial support. Basically means that they cared for you when you were young, you care for them when their need arises in their old age. That's the issue. So honor widows means to support them and, and take care of them in kindness and favor and financial aid. And, and it seems like here in the passage that lots of widows were being supported by the church in Ephesus. I think we can get that sense. And so Paul says we have to narrow this down in order to be scriptural and follow God's intent for it. So he says only honor or support those who are widows indeed. Genuine widows. That's the issue. So those are people who are truly bereft, truly left alone without resources. And not every woman is in that situation. Not every woman who is without a husband is in dire straits. Some husbands, when they pass, leave, leave something behind for them and take care of them. And, and of course, the church can step in and help with physical labor and the kind of things that they may need, but they don't have that financial need. They're not in dire straits. There's no gap there. And the husband took care of her. So not everybody's in the same, in the same boat, see? Not every woman's in dire strait. So Paul's going to help Timothy deal with this situation by giving really a measuring rod, a list of qualifications. That's just obvious, right? I mean, because everyone will have their own definition of who qualifies. Everybody has their own definition who, who's deserving. Everybody has their own definition of what actually my need is, right? What's my level of life that I need to maintain? Everybody has that. So hard decisions that have to be made. But the list is going to be narrowed down because some are not going to qualify for one reason or another. Maybe they already have what they need to live on. Maybe they haven't lived a life in such a way that now that the church can support them. So all these things are very, very important. Now look at verse 4, and we're going to get part of this uh, in the time remaining. We'll get part of this measuring rod. He says this, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. And so we're going to see this later in verse 9, that there has to be a list. Not everyone getting in line just to get what they think they need if they evaluate themselves as a widow indeed. Maybe that was going on beforehand. Maybe that's why Paul had to write and correct it. Maybe that's what was going on in the church. So we have some guidance here. He says this, but if any widow, and just the term for no husband, no husband to provide for her. That's not saying how they don't have a husband, as we saw. That's just not the issue here. And we're going to work our way through the guidance. We will see and it'll narrow the qualifications and give us some some uh, character requirements and some questions about life decisions and the one woman man and all those kinds of things that we'll define as we get through. But if any widow, it says, has children or grandchildren, this is the first, first way that we exclude some. That's direct descendants in line down from them. It's not the nephew over here that's really wealthy. They can take care of them or the, or the aunt or whether the sister, whatever. We're going to see later if there is a sister or whatever, there's some responsibility there. Here we're just talking about directly down children, grandchildren. They must first, it says, learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents. So before the widow is put on the list as a true widow, what needs to be ascertained? Whether they not, whether or not they have any children or grandchildren. See? So that's the first question. Why? Well, because it's the responsibility of the children and the grandchildren to support that widow. That's what he's saying. He's saying, let them, that is the children and the grandchildren, learn first to show their godliness in the family. See? And that's that word oikos. That's actually a, a, a physical family. You say you're godly. Let's see it in your family. That's the question. As he says, they must first learn. And that word learn, manthano, present active imperative. So again, in a command form, whoever this is, whoever the descendants of this widow are, their first command they have to, uh, to learn, because that's proton, first in order of importance, before you learn anything else, the first thing you need to learn is that you're going to have to learn how to take care of those who are your parents. It's a command. And we looked at the first two verses of chapter 5, right? We saw Timothy instructed on relating to those he must rebuke and teach. So very likely then in the church, there were widows who were receiving aid from the church that had what? Children and grandchildren. And what will Timothy have to do? He'll have to end the support 
So that's going to be difficult, isn't it? And sticky because you've got a person, who, a, a lady who's older than him who's been on the, on the dole at the church, but she has family who are not doing anything. And he's going to have to rebuke the children and the grandchildren because they're not what? Taking care of those that are their parents and their grandparents. First in order of importance, children and grandchildren are to be instructed and learn first and foremost before anything else to make some return, he says, to their parents. If you're really godly, this is what you'll do first. That's the issue. And this is much like what the Pharisees were doing, right? I mean, they, they came across as godly, didn't they? They would come across as holy to people. They looked good. But what was really going on is they were saying, hey, what I'd really take to support my parents, I'm going to give to God, and that's more important. And God says, you disregard the fifth command of the Ten Commandments in doing, making this rule, which isn't my rule. They looked godly, they set aside their money, but they weren't godly according to Jesus. Why? They weren't honoring their parents. And that was likely what was going on in Ephesus with some, which is why Paul says it this way. They must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family. Now, here's the thing. You might come across godly at church, but if you're not taking care of this need in your family, you don't understand what true acts of godliness really are. Because when you come to church... You are really what you want us to think you are, right? And when you come to church, it can be easy to appear godly to church people who don't know anything about your home life. They just see you here and you put on whatever air it is and whatever, whatever mask, whatever clothing, whatever it is, whatever demeanor, and people don't know anything about you really, and so they think that you're godly. You come across how you want people uh, to think about you. They probably will think about you that way. But in the family... You are what you are. There is no mask in the family. Everyone knows what you are. If you're the real deal, they know it. If you live a double life, they know it. So Paul says, regardless of how you may appear at church, real godliness is determined by your care for each other. And in this case, how you honor your parents and your, or grandparents, and particularly a woman who doesn't have a husband. That's real godliness. That's where it really comes down to true religion. Not what you look like outside, what you do at home. And just as a footnote, if you remember chapter 3, for example, we looked at this just a minute ago, an elder had to rule his own house well and have his children in submission with all seriousness. And a deacon, if you remember, in verse 12, had to have his own children and his house under control. Because your children will know if you're godly and they're going to act accordingly. Do you understand that? See, you are who you are at home. You want your children to reject the gospel, just have a double life at home. And they'll pretty much throw the whole thing out. The home's the proving ground of godliness. He says, if there's a widow who has children or grandchildren, let them practice their godliness, protos, first of all, in their family. It's the same with a deacon. It's the same with an elder. You don't have the right to stand up here and lead the church if your children are not godly, if they won't walk with you. Why? They won't walk with the Lord. Why? Because you weren't able to communicate the gospel clearly because your life contradicted it, most likely. So your children threw the whole thing out and they won't follow and you prove that you're not worthy to lead the church. You can't do it. It's the same for the deacon. You can't sit at a deacon's meeting and your children are, are off the hook. Right? And they're just doing whatever they want and they deny the Lord. And in Titus, when they're older, they deny the Lord and they act in such a way that looks like they've never received the gospel, then you're disqualified because the family's the proving ground. And here it's the same way. If children and grandchildren have responsibility to care for that widow, that woman, those parents, and, and you claim to be godly, you claim to be reverent, don't tell me how many Bible studies you go to. Don't tell me how much theology you know. Tell me what you do to demonstrate it and how well you take care of your family. And we're going to see this in 1 Timothy 5.8, but he says that if you don't do this, not only are you not godly, verse 8 says, but anyone who does not provide for his own, especially for those of his own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Catch this, beloved. Worse than an unbeliever. That's just a wow factor. In other words, it's so obvious that this is what's supposed to be done to take care of those who took care of you that unbelievers usually get this right. But the church wasn't getting it right. And that's principle number four for widow care. So here it is. And we just summed it up. Boil it down right here. We just, I 
all the background and why this is the case. But for widow care then, as we make this measuring rod, if you will, and they begin to uh, help the church make those decisions, the family has the first responsibility. And as we wrap up for today, I think you can understand, as we started this, you understood what it said. You understood what it meant by what it said, because it's pretty obvious, it's not hidden. But I think you're taking away, how does that apply to me? Right? I mean, there's a lot of application here. If you say you're godly, and you say you're growing, and you're studying the Bible, and you're going to Bible studies, and you're going to ministry, that's fine. But godliness will be shown first in your relationship to your parents. How you treat your mother, how you treat your father, how you treat the sisters, how you treat your brother, brothers, how you treat your sister, brother on brother, mothers, how do you treat your children, how do you care for the home. That's godliness. Don't tell me you're going to 15 Bible studies. Don't tell me you're reading your Bible every day in a coffee shop for 20 minutes. Listen, how you serve in your home is the indication of whether you're godly or not, okay? No wiggle room there. Wives, how do you treat your husbands? Husbands, fathers, how do you treat your children? I'm not talking about making sure that they have a nice car to drive and go to the best university and you're getting them established in their home. That's not what I'm talking about at all. That has no bearing. I'm talking about you being a provider so they have all the nice clothes and the cool gadgets. What I'm talking about is, did you discipline and instruct them and bring them up in godliness and model that day after day? That's godliness, okay? Don't tell me how many committees you sat on. Don't tell me how important in the church you are. You're showing me whether or not you have the right to even work in the church, but whether or not your children are godly. And you love them by bringing them into subjection and you do the hard things and you're the strict dad and you're not the friend. You're the parent. And you love them enough to correct them and not let them go off on a tangent that will lead to their destruction. See? And your disqualification as a leader. How do you love your, how do you love your children, fathers? Husbands, how do you treat your wives? That's godliness. Don't tell me you're godly. Don't, sit on a, uh, don't be on a committee. Don't be on a leadership place if you don't love your wife like Christ loved the church. Well, you don't understand my wife. Yeah, I know. Okay? You have to understand your wife and live with her in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel so your prayers aren't hindered. You have to study her. How do you connect with her? How do you minister to her? How do you bless her? That's your responsibility. So how do you love your wife? See, because that's godliness. Don't tell me you lead a small group Bible study, but you don't, lead, you don't love your wife like Christ loved the church. Listen, that the true measure of whether or not you're godly is not, not how much theology you know and how many people you're discipling. True godliness is how much you're loving your wife, okay? It's always the proving ground. It's all, home is always the proving ground. And as we wrap up today, I think you can easily state the general principle at work here. The evidences of godliness will start in the home, okay? And that's the time we have for today. But I think you can see this, as I can, how valuable this teaching is, not just in its primary application, as the church must care for widows who are widows indeed. And we're going to get down really to that list as we work our way through these 16 verses. But also the qualifications. We find much to think about and pray about as we apply them to our own lives. Why? Because there's only one standard of godliness. They're instructing uh, children and grandchildren, but there's one standard of godliness. Right? We see what the Lord thinks about those who are widows. We see what the Lord thinks about those who are orphans. We see what the Lord commands in honoring your parents. And listen, as I said to first service, you may not have come from a family that was stable, okay? Many of you were hurt by those who were your parents. They were supposed to do a different job than they did. I get that. Some of you, when you think about yourself, the voice that's in your head is your mom or your dad who belittled you and made fun of you all the time. They didn't believe you. They ran you down. You think about the words that they said about you, that's how you think about you. And I pray the Lord will bring a spouse into your life someday who will replace all of that talk with what the Lord says. That if you're, a, if you're a woman, that your husband will wash you with his words and he'll bring you to the place where you can be radiant and glorious and be plugged in and have a future and have a hope and you'll feel like the very person God thinks about you. See, I hope that's the case. I hope as a, I hope as a young man, if all you heard from your dad was negative, negative, you're stupid, you're, the responsible, you, you're responsible for all the stuff that's gone wrong in this family. I hope someday all that gets replaced. But regardless of whether it does or not, you break the cycle, don't you? 
Because you still have the same commands to love your parents and honor them, to take care of them and make sure that they have what they need. You have that, you have that responsibility. And that shouldn't surprise you, should it? Because the Lord allows the rain to fall on the good and the evil, doesn't he? He tells us, for those who abuse you, pray for them. Bless those who spitefully use you. Is it a surprise to us then in our family situation that true religion is this? That the family is measure is the measuring rod for how godly you really are, regardless of how you were treated and brought up. You don't have that as an excuse to act any way that you want, okay? So get out of the victim mentality and move into a godliness and a responsibility and, and growing so that you can begin to do the things that God, God can bless, see? You can change that whole cycle with your family and you can all those things that happen to you don't have to be repeated, but you have to decide that you can move out of there, Okay? And this is so important. There's so much application here, beloved. And I don't pretend to know where the Holy Spirit's doing this in your life. I just know that I had to read through all this and I had to sit there and just think about it and think about my own life and think about my own actions and what I say and, how, and, and my own self-talk. This is, this is important stuff. And we're going to see even more as we work through. And I think you can see, it's not just so inconsequential. And it's like, oh, why are we even looking at this? It's just wow, so boring. What, 16, almost 16 verses of this? And I think you can see one standard of godliness, we're like, oh, okay. Okay. So that's my, uh, that's my word to you, beloved, from the word of God, not, not something I've come up with. It doesn't matter what I say. Just what does the word of God say and apply to us? That's what we want to take away and then begin to be formed in that, in that manner. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for your word, how powerful it is, how applicable, even in these uh, passages we think are so disconnected from us. We see uh, so such instruction that is so applicable to the church today. And Father, I pray that you will work even in difficult situations where uh, there's so much hurt and there's so much baggage and all of that that you'll allow us to be forgiving, to let things go, to, to be wise in how we, how we go about doing our life and the thoughts that we let be in our head and we make sure that we honor and that we uh, support and protect and encourage and do the things we're supposed to do regardless of how we were treated because then we be really begin to resemble you we really begin to look like your son we, we, we were called to these things and difficult times of course we're not outside God's protection he may have allowed you to go through a very difficult time and now he allows you to in the comfort that you've received from him comfort other people and in support and supply and all that that he has done for you, you provide for others. And so we so have family resemblance when we do that. So Father, however it is that your Holy Spirit applies, and whatever it is that he wants to do, we pray that he be free to do it here. And we thank you. We thank you that you're interested in us growing, that you, haven't, uh, that you began a good work and you'll be faithful to complete it, whatever it is and wherever it is. We pray all this in the name of your son Jesus, and we pray it for his sake. And all God's people said, Amen.